Amen. And if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have Bibles that are at the, the center aisle, at the end of each aisle. Just flag somebody down who's sitting over towards the center, and they'd be happy to pass one to you. We'd love for you to just take that with you. That'd be our gift to you. And to, to read it and to, to discuss with you anything that you find in there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, carrying on a, a series through this old letter that we started in January and that's going to carry us all the way through to the end of the year. And what we did last week was tackle what some have called one of the most disputed passages in the entire New Testament. At the very least, it's known as the most difficult and controversial passage in this letter. And it's one that I confessed I have been dreading ever since we started the book. It's one I hope we came to some sort of clarity on last week. It's a harsh warning, a, a promise that anybody who turns away from Jesus is not coming back. That it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have abandoned him. It's almost like the author of this letter knew that that warning was going to be tough to swallow. And because he's a pastor who loves the people that he's writing to, who couldn't tolerate that they might be gripped by an unhealthy kind of fear, follows up the harshest of warnings with words of assurance in verses 9 to 12, where we find ourselves today. He knew they'd be scared. He knew that they would ask what we probably ask when we read that passage. Is this me? Am I guilty of this irreversible abandonment of Jesus? He assures them in the passage we're looking at this morning exactly the same thing that, that I hope we, you were assured of last week. If you're asking whether it's you, it's not you. It can't be you. You have not fallen to this level. That's precisely what he argues here in verses 9 to 12. What he says to them is, I am convinced that you are destined for better things that to you belong the things of salvation. And the reason I'm so convinced of that is what I see in you. That's his argument. What we have, in other words, what we're going to be looking at today, is a list of things that are true of genuine Christians. If last week was about warning them not to abandon Jesus, and this week is about encouraging them that they haven't, another way to look at this week is this author saying, here are the things that I see in you and that have to be true of you, if you're to be genuine Christians with a faith that lasts. I want to tease out three different marks for us this morning. Genuine Christians are marked by love. They're marked by faith. And they're marked by patience. But before we get there, just because of how treacherous these kinds of waters can be, I want to say again something that was said last week. We have to be really, really careful and we start looking to our lives for confirmation that we're okay with Jesus. Not to slip into feeling like we have to justify ourselves before God. Because one, there's, it's only a really short step from trying to look at our lives and analyze them to try to see if, if we have enough faith or enough love to qualify as true Christians. It's only a short step from that to, to saying, well, you know, I've got this much love and this much faith, so therefore God is obligated to look favorably on me. It's, it's, uh, it's what I quoted Michael Horton saying last week. I, I love this quote. I think it's, it's, it strikes exactly the right balance. It's a good warning for us as we look into Mark's this week. 
Horton writes, if we focus on our experience rather than on Christ, if we focus on what we see rather than what we hear, on what's true in our lives rather than what's true about these promises that have been spoken to us, that instead of drawing us out of ourselves in faith that's, that's placed on him and not in ourselves, instead of drawing us out of ourselves in faith, our experience will drive us deeper into ourselves and we'll swing from distrust, despair, or self-righteousness. We'll be proud, one of the two. We're either going to like what we see and be proud or we're going to hate what we see and be despairing. That is not a healthy way to live as followers of Jesus. We're going to try to avoid that trap. But clearly defining what the trap is should not keep us from seeing that the New Testament also says in lots of places that people who are followers of Jesus and, and who are genuine in their following of Jesus, they look different. They just do. It's not that they're free from sin, but they are marked by a certain kind of fruit And the New Testament promises over and over that you will know them by that fruit. So that's what we're looking at today. What we want to try to do, using this text as a guide, is see what it is that made this author sure and confident that those he was writing to were genuine Christians. What kind of fruit was he calling them to? What kind of fruit should we hope to see in our lives? That's what we're looking at. Now, if you found Hebrews chapter 6, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I I read from verses 9 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first mark is the mark of love. comes out in verse 10. He's already said in verse 9, I believe that you are destined for better things, that salvation is what you're destined for. And then verse 10 explains why he's so sure of that. What is it that he sees in them that convinces them, him that, that they are genuine believers? Let me read verse 10 again. For, here comes the reason, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. I think what this verse is saying is, is this. What shows that these that he's writing to are true Christians, what, what demonstrates it for those who are looking at them, is a radically distinctive, God-centered love for each other. That's what I want to unpack in this first point. What shows they're Christians, that they are genuinely followers of Christ, is a radically distinctive, God-centered Love for each other. Start at the end of that verse and work your way back, and I think you'll see what I'm trying to get at. What he points to is that they serve each other. And then he says that's, that serving of each other is what represents their love for God's name. 
and what represents their, and their, their love for God's name is what makes him sure that they're genuine Christians. Do you see how that flow works? He tells them, I'm sure of better things for you because you have this passionate love for God, for his name, for his fame, his reputation, for showing what he's like. And then he defines what that love is. He says, the love that you have for God's name is in serving the saints. So somehow their service to each other, the love that they show for each other, proves that they care about God and his fame. And that's what marks them as true followers of Jesus. How does this work? How is it that serving other people and loving them well shows love for God's sake? I think here, here we get at the essence of what Christian living is supposed to be about. Let me come at this with a couple, from a couple examples. Let me illustrate in a couple ways. First, think about what comes natural to us. What comes natural to us is to seek our own interests, right? To see other people as either some means to getting something that we want, some enhancement of our interests, I guess you could say, or as a threat to our interests, to what we want, to what we need. That's why we manipulate each other. That's why we get jealous of each other. It's why we twist twist the truth when we're pushed into a corner. But what if we didn't treat each other that way? What if we treated each other unnaturally? What if we gave away our lives rather than building them up? What if we sought out, if we actually went out looking for opportunities to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of other people? What would that say? Wouldn't it say that we had found something, someone who has already provided everything that we need so that we don't need to use other people, we're freed up to give ourselves away to other people. Wouldn't that make an incredible statement about the quality of the one who has provided for everything that we need? Wouldn't that bear witness of what he's like, of of his essence, of his beauty and his perfections? You see how that works? By not treating each other in the way that comes naturally, by going out of our way to be unnatural in our love for each other. What we're doing is adding to the fame of the one who we claim so perfectly provides everything that we need that we don't have to abuse each other to get ahead. It adds to the fame of his name when we serve each other really well. Here's another another angle. Our sacrificial love for other people shows what God is like. It gives an illustration of his sacrificial love. And what is, it, what is it that we hold to in the gospel? Isn't it that the God who made us, who is worthy of unblemished obedience from us, who loved us enough to care for all of our needs, has been abandoned by us, mocked by us, but that he responded not in blowing us off the face of the earth, but in coming into our history? in taking on something of our humanity so that he could bear the load that was meant for us? Isn't that the most dramatic picture of sacrificial love we can even imagine? And if that's what God is like, in his essence, if he is that kind of love, like the New Testament says over and over again, if God is love, then when we love other people like that, 
What are we doing? We're, we're highlighting what he's like. We're painting a picture for them of what the love we have experienced looks like in practice. And we are therefore, in loving each other really well, we're, we're adding to the fame of God's name. We're piling up his reputation in the eyes of other people. What convinces this author that the people who are reading his letter are genuine Christians is that they love God's name so much find him so satisfying and have been so taken by his sacrificial love for them that they are freed up to do exactly what he's done for them for all those that they live around. They are freed to give themselves away. This is such a consistent New Testament theme. He's not making this up, right? It is all through the New Testament. What marks genuine Christians is their love for each other. That's why, for example, Paul when he starts talking about what the gospel means in practice, when he starts talking about the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, he defines those things based on how we treat each other. It's qualities that affect relationships. It's things like grace and patience. Why do you, you don't need patience if you aren't dealing with difficult people. But those who have been marked by God's love are patient with each other. They, they show grace to each other. They're marked by compassion and forgiveness, not resentment and bitterness. So Jesus said that people will know You're my disciples by the way that you love each other. That's what shows you're genuinely followers of mine. So John says in 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see how consistent this is? What shows that we have truly been marked by the transforming love of Jesus is the way that we love each other. I love the way that John Stott put it. John Stott was this, was this English pastor. He died pretty recently, pastored for in, in London for like 50 years. And he, he, he wrote some amazingly compelling books he had a great way of just capturing things with, a, with, with clear and incisive language. And I think he captures this point that our author is trying to make really well. This is from a book called Contemporary Christian. Here's what Stott says. The invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ, talking about the incarnation, now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. You get that? At one point in history, God became visible. The invisible God became visible in Jesus. And now Jesus isn't here anymore. But what is here are people marked by Jesus' love on their lives. And now it's those people and the way that they love each other that show what God looks like. Stott continues. God is love in his essential being. That's who he is, right? He is defined by his love. And he's revealed his love and the gift of his son to live and die for us. Now he calls us to be a community of love, loving each other in the intimacy of his family across the barriers of age and sex and race and rank and loving the world he loves and its alienation and hunger and poverty and pain. It's through the quality of our loving that God makes himself visible today. Stott's getting at exactly the same thing that our author is getting at. What shows that we're Christians is that we love each other in this distinctive, totally unnatural, completely sacrificial, and ultimately God-centered way. 
And it's God-centered because we love Him and we want Him to be famous. And the way we make Him famous is loving each other well in His name. That's the point. I think what we got to see here is that it is impossible to be a genuine Christian apart from a life-shaping, love-giving relationship with other people. There's just no such thing as a lone ranger kind of Christianity where you, where you don't have anyone in your life who you're giving to and receiving from. I mean, you can get a lot of the things these days that you would get out of a good church on your computer, right? You can get much better preaching than you're hearing this morning. You can get, you can get message boards where you can interact with people and talk theology and, you know, and sports or whatever else people do after the service is over. You can get teaching, high-quality teaching from seminary professors all over the place with free lectures online. You can get a lot of the stuff that you would get from being part of a vibrant church community. But that's not what genuine Christianity looks like, is it? Genuine Christianity is about loving each other in the trenches. Do you love in this radically distinctive way? Have you ever thought about the fact that the more foolish, the more inexplicable the nature of our love for each other, the clearer the testimony about God's love, the more foolish our love for each other looks to the world, then the clearer our testimony about what God's love is like becomes. If we treat each other like everyone else does, then what are we saying about the God that we serve? He's, he's okay. Like you get anywhere else. But if we love each other in crazy, outlandish, radically distinctive ways, and that says something radically distinctive about the God whose whose marks we carry on our on ourselves. So you say you love God, but do you love each other? There's this pastor in DC, a guy named Mark Dever, who's had a big impact on me, and I've heard him say many different times that he has a lot of a lot of like young single guys who are really into theology in his church and what he tells them is that you know you may spend three or four hours a day reading theology but if you're unwilling to give a 90 year old man a ride to church and to get up an hour earlier to make that happen then i'm not sure you know jesus what's he getting at Radically distinctive love is what marks true followers of Christ. I mean, ultimately, that's what our church covenant is about. You guys have seen it, maybe you've signed it, others may have read it on the website. What binds us together as a church body, like, like other local churches through time and all across the world, is a set of promises that we make to each other, distinctive promises to love each other radically and in ways that just don't make sense apart from the gospel. We promise that we're not going to let petty differences tear our relationships apart. That when we're, when we're sinned against, we're going to seek reconciliation. We're going to do that quickly. We promise that we're going to have thick skin. We're not going to let just anything upset us. We promise that we are going to bear each other's burdens. That when something bad happens to one of us in our community, we don't look, we don't look at that and think, more, think better about ourselves because somebody else had something bad happen to them, which is the natural thing to do. But we feel it as if it happened to us. We bear that burden with them. Who does stuff like that? Who spends their Sunday mornings taking care of other people's kids? 
Who makes meals for new moms when they themselves have a kid or two and they're eight months pregnant? Only those who are marked by a radically distinctive and all-compelling love. Those are the people who make God's name famous. Those are the genuine Christians. They're marked by love. Now, I promise much, much more quickly. Let's get to the marks two and three. I think I need to do a little bit of work here to help you see how I'm getting to these next two marks. Right after verse 10, our author changes gears a little bit. Instead of saying, here's some things I see happening in you that show me you're genuine Christians, he switches to try and encourage them to strive after these marks. He says, what, what you should be marked by is a kind of assurance of your hope that drives everything that you do. That you're so certain of what's set before you and of how valuable it is that you're giving everything to it. That's what I want from you. And then in verse 12, he helps us see what that looks like in practice. Verse 11 is the goal. He wants them to have assurance of their hope, a life-shaping assurance. Verse 12 shows a little more about what that looks like. And he says it through, through a contrast. Look at verse 12. Here's the point. So that you may not be sluggish or lazy, but instead imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's where I'm getting back to more marks of genuine Christianity. His, his purpose has shifted, but he ends up in kind of the same type place. Now he's trying to encourage them. Imitate these people who have inherited the promises. Don't be lazy. Imitate them. They lived as if the hope was true and was actually coming for them. And here's what it looked like when they, they lived that way. Everyone who's inherited the promises, they were marked by this, by faith and by patience. So if love is already in them, marking them as genuine Christians, what they need to seek, what really these two marks can only be shown over time, it's not like you can check them off a list. They're enduring marks. What you need to be after, building your life for, committing everything to, is growing in faith and growing in patience. Those who have faith and patience inherit the promises and be like them. That's the point. So I want to unpack faith and unpack patience really quickly this morning. Faith is a crucial theme in Hebrews. It comes up a lot. We've already seen it a couple different times, but I think the most famous part of Hebrews that talks about faith is chapter 11. It's often known as the hall of faith because it just rattles off all these guys from the Old Testament, guys and girls from the Old Testament who have, who have lived faithfully. They persevered to the end, and they were honored for it because they, they, they lived in, in light of promises that were unfulfilled but that they trusted would be fulfilled. Hebrews 11 gives us a sense of what authentic faith looks, at, looks like. Let me, let me just point you, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of that chapter to help us get a sense of what he means when he says that, that those who inherit the promises inherit them through faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. You see, he's basically saying the same thing as he says in chapter 6. He's, he's kind of hinting at what's coming in chapter 6. Those who have inherited the promises, the faithful ones, the one you're to imitate, received their commendation by faith. By faith, he says in verse 3, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he launches in to a couple of examples Verse 6 is the last I'll read. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The faith that he's calling us to here, the faith that that marks genuine Christians, is a certain type of conviction. It's a life-shaping confidence in God's promises. And it's a confidence in those promises that they're true, even if what they promise is not seen yet. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. His examples help us understand it even better. Abraham is one he's about to go to next in chapter 6, and he comes back to him at length in chapter 11. Think about Abraham. Think about that story. It's told in Genesis. Abraham is a great, a great illustration of what faith is like because here's a guy who was called to some really extravagant promises, like you're going to be the means by which I save the world kind of promises. And the specific promises that he was given were the kinds of promises that he could not possibly effect on his own. Think about it. He was promised a promised land, a place that represented peace and security and provision of God. And he didn't have any land. He was a nomad. He lived in tents. He traveled around grazing animals. He had no land. He was promised descendants, and he was way past fertility at this point. There is no way he could have produced for himself descendants, not to mention the fact that his wife was barren. And yet, when God comes to him with these promises, Abraham stakes everything on those promises being true. He uproots his family and moves as he's directed by God. And he does that not perfectly, not without self-doubt, but resiliently in a way that, that shapes his whole life. He stakes himself to those promises being true. Remember, in our passage in Hebrews 6, this faith that we're called to is presented as the opposite of laziness. We're told, don't be lazy, but be like them. And they had faith. Faith is the opposite of laziness. So don't think that what we're called to is a sort of que-sera-sera attitude, where we just sort of let go and let God, where we just sort of disengage our minds and affections from what's going on around us, that that's what faith is like. It's, It's not that at all. Faith actually is hard work. Can you imagine the self-doubt that Abraham must have experienced time and again as he followed the, the, the instructions and pursued these promises that God had given him? And I think we see it in our own lives. We, we struggle to believe. We struggle to live as if we don't have to rely on our own resources. That's what comes so naturally to us, and we're always sort of mixed bags. So what I don't want you to see here is, is on the one hand, just sort of checking out and just live, letting go and letting God. And on the other hand, I don't want you to slip into a pattern of wondering, sort of being captured by this question of whether or not you have enough faith. Is, if faith is what marks genuine Christians, you could, you, I could see us sort of becoming all introspective and really worrying about whether or not we have enough. Do I believe enough? That's not what's being called for either. What's being called for What marks genuine Christians who have a faith that lasts is a recognition that their faith isn't what it needs to be, that it's deficient. They're not lazy about it. They don't just say, I've checked my faith off on a list and now I'm good to go. But they want, they hunger for and strive after more faith. So those who are genuine Christians, seeing their faith is deficient, they still get gripped by worry, right? 
but one who, is, who has faith that isn't sluggish, when gripped by worry, sees that as a problem, desires freedom from it, and takes it to God. Genuine Christians marked by real faith, they see self-righteousness in themselves. They see pride and condescension, sense of superiority to other people. But it turns their stomach when they see it. And they ask for a better sense of their own sin and for a deeper trust in Jesus' work. Genuine Christians, marked by faith, still struggle with doubt. They sometimes wonder if it's all true. But they ask God to help their unbelief. Genuine Christians, marked by this kind of faith, have not checked faith off their list. They're not sluggish in it. They have it, and they want more of it, and so they're driven to a kind of work towards it, a striving for more of it. That's what it looks like. Now, finally, patience. I think we could do this one really quickly. Here's what patience is. Here's what he's getting at. Patience is what faith looks like in a broken world like ours. Patience is what faith looks like in this world because our world is one where we struggle, where the kind of promises that we've been made, that we've received, have been made to us, are a stark contrast to what we actually experience day in and day out. And we're not the first Christians who have had to live in that tension between what's promised and what is. Hebrews 11 also has some great language on this. I want to read it quickly for you. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11 says this, referring back to the examples that he's just given. Here's what it says. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. They could have gone back if they wanted to. They knew what that land held for them and that it did not satisfy. So they looked for a homeland. As it is, verse 16 says, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This imagery is meant to show us what a patient faith looks like. We're talking about people who died without seeing the promises that were made to them come to to be. They lived as if what they couldn't see were true. And ultimately, every faithful person who's ever walked this earth has died without seeing all of the promises of God fulfilled. I think we see some of his promises fulfilled. We see evidence of his power and grace working, but we don't see them all. What marks these Christians as genuine Christians is that they held on that they lived with a patient trust through the disappointments of life, that they waited for the Lord to use the beautiful Old Testament language. And Hebrews hammers this home over and over again. You want to know if you're a genuine Christian? Here's what marks genuine Christians. They hold on. I know that can be hard, but don't forget the example of Hebrews 11. Don't you remember, if you're struggling to hold on this morning, let me just, let me, let me close by addressing you. Don't you remember the language of Hebrews 11? They could have returned to their former country if they had wanted to, and you can too. 
But haven't you seen enough of that land? Hasn't your heart been broken often enough by the things that you've given it to that haven't satisfied? Do you really want to go back to that? Ultimately, I find myself often just responding to Jesus in the words of Peter. You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? That doesn't mean that our faith is rock solid and certain in the way that math is or science. But it means we hold on because Jesus offers the hope of life. And nothing else can promise us that. So hold on to him. Father, please help us. We have learned from experience that this kind of faith, especially this kind of patience, is not natural for us. We know that the fact that it isn't natural makes it all the more glorious when it's true. And because what we want is to make your name great, to have you be known to to be an amazing and all-gracious and all-sufficient provider of everything that we need, because that's how we want you to be known. We long to have a radically distinctive love for each other, to have a faith that is rooted in what is unseen, not in the transitory and fading things that are seen. We long for a patience that holds on when it doesn't make sense to hold on, so so that those who watch us, who see us, Know that there is some God that we serve who is not like anything else they have ever experienced. Would you make that true for us, we pray. For your name's sake, amen.